It is good to be here with you uh, this morning. It was good to be with the, the service earlier, and it's good to see you because I'm seeing a lot of familiar faces. As, uh, as Aaron said, I have uh, been at Chandler Street for 15 years, a little over 15 years, and the reason I came out to East Texas was because of one of your old youth ministers, Bruce Beaver, and I would say, yeah, he probably is an old guy now. Um, a lot more gray in his beard, just like, like, uh, like me and my hair. But uh, it, it was, it, we, were, we were close friends, and he said, uh, you should come and, and apply over at Chandler Street, and we can do youth ministry together. And so I have been able to uh, do camps with you guys and mission trips with you guys and retreats and all sorts of things that were wonderful. I've gotten to see a lot of your kids grow up. There's folks in here that I was a group leader for at Camp Deer Run, which was a fun time. So it's neat to be here. And then we have folks that have moved Longview that were part of our congregation, so it's good to see them again, Uh, and uh, it is just wonderful to be here. And one of the other great things is when Jody came here, I've known Jody for over 20 years, I was also his group leader at Camp Deer Run, and when he came here, we've gotten to get together and we get to uh, meet at Starbucks every Tuesday, not every Tuesday, every every two or, or, or two or three Tuesdays a week. And uh, in a month, and we get together and we solve all of the world's problems. We solve all the church's problems. And so it's been wonderful having him here. And you are a blessed congregation to have Jody. I listen to him every week. Um, it's, he's, he's wonderful to listen to, wonderful uh, to be with. And, and I was uh, more than happy to come in and, and uh, speak for, for you while he's out with his, his family on, on the holidays. And one of the things that Jody and I decided to do this year is we decided to do the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians together. And then Jody decided uh, he wasn't going to do uh, 2 Thessalonians, he was going to do another series, but I went on to do 2 Thessalonians, and I thought it would be a good idea, and we talked about me coming and doing a little summary of 2 Thessalonians uh, with you, and I think it will be, uh, I think it will be a, a good study to see why Paul writes this second letter to the Thessalonian people uh, within probably six months after the first letter. He tries to fill up some of the confusion they had. But before we get to that, I want you to know those of you that are Christmas decorators, those of you that love to decorate the hall, uh, what is it, deck the halls? Yeah, that's a good, that's a song. Those of you that like to do that, you have now been given Full authority, full rights to do that. People complain and grumble when you might do it before Thanksgiving or before Halloween. That seems a little uh, crazy. But now, no one is stopping you. You are able to do all the decorating you want. And one of the things that uh, my wife, Mary, who's sitting over here, she, has, uh, she, she, she is, is chomping at the bit in September to decorate for uh, Christmas. But I try to put, put the brakes on at least till Thanksgiving week. But yesterday, not yesterday, Friday, Friday, she uh, got everything out and she was ready to get started. And this is our mantle place right, right here. This is a nice little setting. And there's a new addition this year, and that is... Oh, Santa Claus up there. And if you look at Santa Claus, uh, Mary, we had a smaller picture and she wanted a big portrait of Santa Claus. And she went out to Hobby Lobby. I think that's where you got it, right? Hobby Lobby, yeah. And she gets Santa Claus and he is coming. And Santa Claus, in this picture, 
is all business, isn't he? <laughs> you look at that man, he, he is posing for, that's what she wanted. She wanted a portrait of Santa, and he is posing for that picture, and he is all business. And he is going to make a list, he's going to make sure he checks it twice, He's going to find out who is naughty and nice. And this is the Santa that kind of scares me because I'm not always a make, it, make a list and check it twice kind of guy. Matter of fact, sometimes I rush things. I'll send out emails with incorrect grammar or, or, or maybe I'll say something that I, did, I didn't mean to say. Or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll send a text and, and autocorrect made the word a little bit crazy. But I'm more like this other guy right here. Whoever was in charge of, of painting the stop lines for the stop sign, if you see that, uh, there's a reason for order in this world, and uh, there's a reason that for letters to all go in a certain order, so you know exactly what it's saying. So um, that's more like me. And in a lot of things, that's not a big deal. If I don't double-check my work, a lot of things uh, people will understand. They, they will uh, realize what I'm trying to say. And even in situations like that, we understand that that means stop. But if we don't double-check our work in some things, if we don't double-check what people are telling us and comparing that to the truth, we can end up with a pretty bad situation on our hands. And that's the reason 2 Thessalonians is written. The Thessalonian people, they were incredibly faithful. And they were starting out to be persecuted. They were starting to, to, uh, to, to get persecuted by the government. Their families were turning on them because they were giving their allegiance to this God that they've never heard of. This, this man, Jesus Christ, who supposedly came back from the dead. And so they're listening to people from the outside that are saying that they're saying the words of God, but they're not really the words of God, and they're not double-checking what the words of God really are and double-checking who our Lord is. And so one of the interesting things is the, start, the, the contrast that Luke makes about the Thessalonian people and the people in Berea where Paul went right after Thessalonica. If you remember the story of, of Paul going to see the Thessalonians, he was there three weeks. Everyone was giving their lives to Christ. They were, they were, uh, they, they were gung-ho for God, but the city didn't like it, and they ran them out in the middle of the night. And to avoid persecution, to avoid possibly being killed, Paul escapes in the middle of the night. And if you go to Acts chapter 17, verse 10, it says, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What Luke is trying to get us to see in, in, in uh, the book of Acts is what made the Bereans more noble what made them have a higher character is that they were not just taking Paul at his word, but they were seeing if what Paul was saying matched up with what was being said in the scriptures. And so they would go to the synagogue and they'd look at the scriptures and see that, yes, the scriptures did point to a Messiah. And they did point to that this Messiah would be a suffering servant, as you read in Isaiah chapter 53. 
And that's something that we need to make sure that we're doing. Double-checking what is heard that we hear from the pulpit here today, from the pulpit when, when Jody's here, from, from all the things outside this world. We need to be in the Scripture because this world gives us so many different lies and variations of who our God is. So many people show our God to be an angry God, a vengeful God. And they miss that our God is a loving God and a redemptive God. If you look at the scriptures and if you look at different sources that try to show you who our God is, if you're not reading this holy word from God, you're doing yourself a grave disservice. The Bible's credibility is so incredible. It was written in a span of 1,500 years. Written by 40 different authors. Written in three different languages throughout the Bible. Written on three different continents. But the entire thing, the entire message of the Bible is the same thing. God's redemptive love for mankind. This is an ancient writing, and it's more translated than any other ancient writing. It's sold more than any other ancient writing. It's preserved better than any other ancient writing. If you look at one of, uh, something even somewhat comparable, you look at maybe Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, which maybe you read in high school, maybe you read in college. I had to read it a few times in college. And in the Odyssey, there's 600 manuscripts of the original writings from Homer. And no one questions that Homer wrote it and, and that, it, that it was written from him. But if you compare that to the Bible, there's 10,000 manuscripts from the original writings in the Old Testament. 30,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. There is nothing more reliable, no book more reliable, more scrutinized than the Scriptures. More, uh, no book has tried to be eliminated from this world than the Scriptures. And why is it still here? Because God wants us to know of His redemptive love for man. And all of the Scriptures will eventually point to God's answer to us. And that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. So the entire time, these Scriptures that we're reading all point to Jesus Christ. And we can go back through the Scriptures. We can go through the Old Testament. We can go through the New Testament. We can see why Jesus is the answer for our life. Jesus is the one that is going to give us eternal life with our God. And so this is the message that was sent out to the Thessalonian people. And the Thessalonians loved it. And they want to have this rich, satisfying life in Jesus Christ. But they're starting to go through tough times. They're starting to endure persecution from outside sources. And matter of fact, people are starting to tell them that Jesus Christ must have already come back. If he's coming back for you, he's already come because our God would never allow you to go through suffering. 
never allow you to go through this persecution. Now, Scripture never tells them that. Matter of fact, Scripture tells them the exact opposite. Jesus' teaching tells you the exact opposite, that there will be suffering for those in Christ. But our eternal reward will outmatch any suffering that we might have. So if you open your Bibles, open them to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. If you see this book of Thessalonians, it is written at the very beginning of any, any book of the Old Testament. This is probably the first book that, was, that, that, we, that we have a record of. It was the first one that was written before the Gospels, before those had, had been written down. Thessalonians, it's, it's from one of, one of the early missionary trips of Paul. And what Paul is telling them is he is thanking them for all the struggles that they've gone through. The persecutions that have just now started. And then Paul wants them to know that they're going to go through some tough times. Our Lord has not left them alone. They will struggle through some tough times. And that's why he says, all this is evidence. Or he says, among God's churches, we, we boast about your perseverance and faith in, in the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble for those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. One of the things that Paul wants them to realize is though they are suffering, they have not been forgotten by God. They've not been forsaken by God. Matter of fact, God sees their suffering and God is going to reward them for their suffering. In Revelation, uh, it, John, John tells us that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. God sees our suffering and God is going to reward us for our faithfulness. But, God, but Paul also wants them to realize that God sees those that are troubling them. God sees those that are offering, that are giving pain and sorrow to them. Those that are hurting you. God sees this. And what he wants them to realize, and what he wants us to realize now, is our God is going to take care of the people that are troubling you, that are hurting you. He doesn't want you to be filled with anger. He wants you to be able to give it to him and realize that he is a God of justice and he will take care of that. So he is going to reward us that are faithful and he is going to have judgment and show justice to those that have hurt us. And so we don't have to worry about that in our lives. We can give that to God. That's what that would mean. Give it to God. Let God be the just one. Let God be the one that delivers justice. And then it says in chapter 2, because the people are still nervous about, did God really come? Has He left us behind? And He wants them to realize that there is a few things that are going to happen before 
Jesus ever returns to take us with him. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. He wants them to realize that the day of the Lord certainly has not come. And we should know when the day of the Lord is going to be here. No one's going to miss it because... He writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Dead people will be rising from their grave. People that are in Christ Jesus will be going into the sky to meet him. This is not something that any of us will miss. It's not like you'll just be standing there and you look around and, and the person is gone. We will know when Jesus returns. We will know when God's judgment is here. And so he wants them to rest easy knowing that they're still, they're still good. God has not left them. God is still returning for them. But then he gets to a part that starts to get a little bit more difficult for us to understand. And he starts speaking in things that are, that are almost prophecies to us. And, and so he starts in, in verse 3, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come until the great rebellion occurs. So what is he talking about? What is this great rebellion? Well, luckily we have access to Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And Jesus tells us all about what this great rebellion is in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, it says, verse, uh, verse 10, it says, And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. Before our Lord returns, there is going to be a mass rebellion against our God. People are going to turn away from our God. People are going to have hate in their hearts. Their love will grow cold. They'll no longer give their allegiance to God. So was this happening in the time of the Thessalonians? No. What Paul says is their, their gospel is spreading more and more. All over Greece, people are, are hearing about the good news of Christ. And so you see tons of people giving their life to Him. But what about today? Do you feel like we are growing as a church in this, in this nation, in this world? Or are people turning away from God? Are people choosing not to give their allegiance to our God, not to give, let Him be the authority in their life? I would say this country is showing us that droves and droves of people are turning away from God. Does that mean that we're in the end days? That can't be something I can answer. But it should be something that wakes us up and realizes our God is coming and we need to be prepared if it's today, if it's soon. This is a letter that's supposed to wake the people up and make them realize they need to be ready for when Jesus returns. And so then he starts speaking about a little bit, uh, a little bit more, more things that we, we might struggle with understanding exactly who he's talking about. He says in verse 3, And the man of lawlessness 
is revealed. A man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the Lord is not going to return until this man of lawlessness is there. So who is this man of lawlessness? Is this someone that's already been? Is this someone that's yet to be? Is this more of an idea? More of a, a, an idea of lawlessness that we're following? Or is it an actual person that one day we, that we will see? We might not have a good answer for that, but the Thessalonian people might have a little bit better idea of what Paul is talking about. Like I said, at the very beginning of of Thessalonians, this is the start of persecution against Christians. There wasn't mass persecution, and the emperors of the time, while they would give freedom of worship to certain people, they started not to like that near as much. And so the emperors at the time were, were, were starting to, to uh, put themselves in to the people's religion. Matter of fact, there was an emperor named Caligula that a few years before this letter was written decided he was going to put a statue of himself right in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem's temple. And he was talked out of that. But that wasn't going to stop the emperors from elevating themselves to God by putting themselves right in the temple of God. Matter of fact, Jesus knew this was going to happen. And that's why Jesus told them as his disciples were looking at this great temple, he gives a prophecy that was true 40 years later and remains true to this day. In Mark 13, verse 2, he says, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they'll be completely destroyed, demolished, Not one stone will be left on top of the other. As they were looking at the temple saying how great it is, Jesus is going to say, this temple is going to be wiped off, basically from the face of the earth, and there'll just be flat land. And if you go to Jerusalem right now, where the temple stood, there's nothing. Nothing of God's. Matter of fact, there's a Muslim holy place on top. Why? Because God's temple is not there. God's temple is in his people, in our hearts. So Paul starts to explain a little bit about lawlessness and where lawlessness comes from. In verse 9 he says, The coming of of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. In all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they will perish because they, refuse to, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. How does Satan work? Satan doesn't want us to give our allegiance to our God. He wants us to think that the most important thing in our life is our own self-gratification. Whatever's good for ourselves, that's where we should put our allegiance to. So if it works good for me, then I'll do it. If not, I don't want to hear it. And so we don't search the scriptures. We don't see what God wants us to do. We decide what we want to do because we're elevating ourselves like we're God's. 
And this is exactly what Satan did at the very beginning. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Then he says, You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened up as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What Satan wants us to do is think that we are as important as God, and our desires are as important as God, and we start to believe these lies. Satan believed that own lie himself, and he was cast to this earth. It tells us that in the book of Isaiah. It tells us that in Revelation chapter 12. And now he sits around trying to devour God's people, wanting us to make that same bad choice. But if we give in to ourselves and only satisfy ourselves, we live a life of lawlessness. And a life of lawlessness means we lose our freedoms. The freedoms in this world. I don't know if any of you have ever spent time imprisoned, but I have. When I was in college, I was, uh, went to Texas A&M and I was uh, working on something we called the floor crew and I, I would uh, clean carpets and I would uh, wax floors. And we had a big job and it was for a new juvenile penitentiary or detention center in Bryan College Station. And we were the last ones to be there to make it all nice and, and pretty floors for the inmates to do whatever they do with the floors, right? And so I'm, I'm waxing the floors and I'm, I'm doing pretty good and we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the job. But then I decided to go looking around because I'd never been in a prison. So I want to go, uh, I'm trying to check things out and I go and I see these, this part, it's almost like a solitary confinement area. And I walk in the door. And something catches my eye. There's a toilet with a water fountain on top of it, which I thought, that's kind of interesting. So I get a little closer to look at that. As I walk forward, the door to the cell closes shut. I'm thinking, surely not. Surely that door isn't locked. And I go and push on the door, and the door is locked. And I'm stuck in there. Stuck in prison. And my partner that, that, that's supposed to be cleaning uh, or, or doing the floors uh, somewhere else, I don't know, well, is he going to know to come back here? Because I really wasn't where I was supposed to be. About 30 minutes later, he comes back and he sees, he says, are you stuck in there? I said, yeah. He says, well, let me go see if I can find a key. And I guess he's thinking that Andy Griffith has the key up on the, on the hook, right, next to Next to the gel. Well, there's no key. You can't find it. And so then we decide we get a pot. I had a pocket knife with me and we try to open the prison cell and we're not getting out. I'm never going to break out of jail <laughs> anytime soon. So I don't have those skills. But then my partner just decides to leave. Says, well, sorry about that. He comes back 30 minutes later, says, are you still in there? I said, yeah, I think he's a dummy, but I'm looking at myself and I'm the one stuck behind bars. Eventually, we call the warden who lives 30 minutes away. He has to drive up and let me out. I was in prison for about four hours. You know what I realized? 
I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't like the idea of hope. The idea of being lost. And this is exactly why these scriptures are written for us. Because lawlessness in our world takes over our lives. We should never let Satan enter in to our temple. The temple to our God, which is in our heart. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? When we let lawlessness seep in, it takes away our hope, our, our hope, our freedom, and it's not a life that we would want. Jesus explains exactly what he's come to do in contrast with what the lawless one comes to do and what Satan comes to do. And he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief's purpose is to still kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. This is the good news. Jesus Christ has come to give us a rich, satisfying life while the thief comes to take away our life. So we are called to give our life to Him and we're called to make sure that no one else is lost in this world. And that's why He ends this, cha- ends this, this letter in chapter 3. He wants us to get this message out. And He says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. He says, Make sure that it is spread rapidly. Make sure that others can hear this good news so that they won't lose hope. So that they can have a life with God as well. And then he ends this whole chapter talking about laziness. But it's not a laziness of just taking advantage of others, though that's in there a little bit. But it's making sure you don't have a lazy faith. Making sure that we realize that we have an active faith that we help out our brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace comes free, but grace isn't cheap. Our Lord paid quite a bit for us to be there with Him one day so that He can wipe away our tears and we'll have no more sorrow, no more pain. So I encourage you not to live life by cheap grace. Not to be lazy in the faith but to go out and do the goodwill of our God. If you want to give our God your life today, you can do that. You can be baptized into Him. You can be raised with Him and have eternal life with Him. Or you might need prayers of the church to pray that uh, lawlessness doesn't fill your temple or fill the temple of our God. Whatever your need, please come while we stand and sing. Thou